in Acts 7, Acts 18, so we're going to be going to kind of be all around there. In the 18th chapter of Acts, um, Paul has, if you remember, he was at Athens and left. Uh, by the way, I was gonna, the other thing I was going to tell you about that made this weekend challenging, I felt like Abraham Lincoln. I was studying last night with a flashlight. Um, yesterday morning, I was prepping. I was, you guys have been to my house. I was by the patio door, kind of leaning over, try, trying to see my notes. So if anything makes sense today between that and my voice, the Lord only knows, you know. Um, Paul was in Athens, if you remember, and had some success there. But as far as we know, he didn't plant a church in Athens. He leaves there um, and goes south to Corinth. He's excited about that. He's excited about that because uh, Corinth really is a larger city. It's got uh, every bit the reputation that Athens has in some ways. And it's just a busy, busy place. He knows there are synagogues there that he can hang out in. And that's, if you remember, kind of his strategy. Now, we can date the time. We can place it in a historical uh, context pretty precisely than any other point in his ministry. Um, Bob, read verse 12 from 18 real quick. Just verse 12 right now. Yep. When Galileo was pro-council of Achaia, the United attack on Paul and brought him to the place of judgment. Okay, now, Galileo was, we know from archaeological digs, actually, that Galileo was um, the proconsul of Achaia from A.D. 51 to 53, from the year 51 to 53. So we know it had to be about then, okay? Uh, really kind of early, less than a couple of decades after the resurrection. The church is less than 20 years old. And uh, so we kind of can know. Uh, it helps us date that. I love what Dr. Luke does for us in his writing of Acts because he places so many things in either a geographical context or in a historical context that we can kind of confirm with um, you know, other historical uh, things. Now, um, he goes on to the next big city, and uh, we think maybe there was as many as 300,000 people there then. It was one of the largest cities in the Roman Empire, uh, it was 50 miles, I said south, it was 50 miles or so west of Athens. Um, and uh, so he's going to hang out there for a while. Now I got to thinking about Paul's work, and he's going to do this work this week that we're going to study. I got to thinking about some of my travels in ministry. Um, I can't even remember how many homes I've lived in. I need to go back and just say, yeah, I remember uh, when I was in Kentucky the, over, the, over the fall, I uh, went back trying to find the very first house that we brought Heather home to, and I just couldn't find it, couldn't figure out which one it was. Because um, you know, she was born in Lexington, and we were living in a little town called Paris, 
And uh, anyway, I, I just can't remember all the places I've lived. Um, you would think I was just a stinking vagabond. But really, it all had to do with some ministry opportunity somewhere. I got to come back here in 1993. Uh, at the time, my mother was really sick. And uh, it was good for her to get to be around my kids in the last few days of her life, last few years of her life. So we got to be back here, and we've been back in Oklahoma since. But, but you know, there were stops in Texas, and there were stops in other places in Oklahoma and in Florida, believe it or not, and uh, lots of places in Kentucky, and, uh, and here we are. Paul is going to spend a full 18 months in Corinth. This is the longest stop he will ever make. And we're going to see kind of what happens when he puts down some of those roots. Bob, I'm going to come back to you. Would you read the four, four verses of 18? After this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth. There he met a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, who had recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had ordered all Jews to leave Rome. Paul went to see them, and because he was a tent maker, as they were, Okay, now, he, um, let me fill in a couple of blanks and we'll stop and talk for a minute. He doesn't linger, that's the first word, very long in Athens. Okay, when his entourage arrives, they leave together. Um, and, uh, he goes on then to Corinth. Uh, actually, let me back up. He goes on to Corinth by himself. Remember, he went to Athens by himself. He goes on to Corinth for himself, and then uh, Silas and Timothy join him there. Now, before they get there, okay, they're going to arrive about in verse 5. Before they get there, he meets some new friends. Put the word in your next blank, companionship. He finds companionship there. Who does he meet? Priscilla and Aquila. Priscilla and Aquila. Okay. Now, um, they were, uh, they end up working together and doing ministry together as well. This is kind of a big deal. Now, uh, the things that happens, somebody go over to chapter 2, to Acts 2, and read verse 9 and 10. Somebody get that for us? I'm going to hand out a couple more of these. 1 Corinthians 4, 12. For, which one you got, Stella? Okay, okay. And then somebody else get First Thessalonians two nine. Okay. Now let's see what we find out here. Um, somebody read two nine and ten. Good luck. Yeah, Cappadocia sounds good to me. You should have. You should have. Now, what's going on here? Uh, let, let's let's read on. First Corinthians four twelve. So. 
heart with our own hand, when we are hurt, we bless. When we are persecuted, we endure it. And it goes on, when we are slandered, we answer kindly. Okay. All right. The key there is they're working with their hands. We're going to talk about that in just a minute. They're co-workers. We're going to talk about what that means. Um, all right. First Thessalonians 2.9. Who's got that? Okay. All right. Now, I'm trying to find... Remember now, give me a little credit because I prepared this in the dark. <laughs> What's going on here is uh, Priscilla and Aquila were originally from a, uh, the pers- uh, kind of the region around a place called Pontus, which was a Roman city in the day. Um, and um, it was one of those cities that, um, that, that um, Steve read about a little bit ago. Pontus. Now, it's on the southern shore of the Black Sea. Um, got a strong trading relationship with Rome. Aquila is probably a successful businessman in that day. But something happens. He was Jewish. Claudius is the emperor in Rome from 41 to about 54. And in 49, he kicks all Jews out of the city of Rome. In about 49, he kicks all the Jews out of the city of Rome. We think uh, it was prompted by some fighting, some mob-led killings. I find that incredibly intriguing based on what's going on in our world. And Claudius, the emperor, didn't want to sort it out. He just heard that the Jews had something to do with it, so he kicked them all out of Rome including this region just south of, of the city of Rome called Pontus. So he um, didn't want to get into the controversy, so he just kicks all the Jews out wholesale. Aquila and Priscilla, this married couple, seems to have been able to them from that point. They, they look for another place of trade. They go to Corinth where they set up shop there. And so it's there at the synagogue that Paul meets this couple. Now, there is some confusion over whether or not they were believers in Jesus when Paul met them. I'm going to approach this as though they were. We know they were God-fearers. We know they were Greeks. We know that they were, um, uh, we we know they were Jewish people, but God-fearers, certainly. We know that um, they've heard the message. We don't know whether they've been baptized into the faith or not. I'm going to assume that they are, because when Paul gets there, they immediately lock arms to work. Now, the kind of work that they did was twofold. It's obvious that they did some work in and around the synagogue trying to persuade people to come to faith in Christ, okay? But guess what else they did together? They set up a tent-making shop together as well. Now, um, what needs to go in your next kind of line there is Paul and his friends, Priscilla and Aquila, were self-supporting. Now, Paul was by trade, uh, by his chosen trade, 
and his selected trade, a rabbi. How do we know that? Remember, he was taught by Gamaliel, he says. He was the rabbi's rabbi. Paul is taught by uh, this Jewish rabbi to become a rabbi. He's a teacher of the law. He's a student of the law and a Pharisee. But in Paul's day, as in Jesus' day, rabbis had to be self-supporting. Okay? So they were all bivocational. I think that's kind of interesting. Since Paul couldn't sell cars, he had to do something else. Huh? Good for him. Since he wasn't good with money, okay, all right, either one of you guys, okay, he had to find something else to do. He became uh, what is known as a tent maker, but we need a little more clarity on that. Anybody got an idea of what a tent maker did? By the way, Priscilla and Coelho did the same thing. They made tents, okay? And then, it was a little more than that, but yeah. They were leather workers. Leather workers, okay? It was hard, back-breaking work. They would literally uh, bind animal skins together that had been tanned in order to make... Uh, shelters, tents, those kinds of things, or whatever else people needed. Uh, one of the details I read about this week reminded me of something that I previously thought about. In fact, I started to see if I could find a leather's needle. Imagine what a leather worker's needle looked like and how hard that would be to punch through the leather. So they wore on their hands all the time a, a glove that was a palm protector. Makes sense, doesn't it? So they could shove that in there, whip it, tie it, whatever they got to do, and then go to the next place and punch it through. Um, I sat through about 16 hours one weekend of a guy talking about, a New Testament scholar talking about what this work was like. It was tedious. It was back-breaking. But it supported them. It gave them uh, uh, livelihood and support that they needed. So, uh, he would do his work here bivocationally with Priscilla and Aquila. And on the weekends, okay, on Saturday, on the Sabbath, you can read about it in verse 4, he would do ministry. Now, let's look at verse 4 again. And he was reasoning in the Sabbath, in the synagogue, sorry, every Sabbath, in trying to persuade Jews and Greeks. So, the idea here is... Um, the word that is translated reason, what is, what is it translated in your Bible? The word reason, verse 4. Is it all reason? I did a little, little research on this word. The word means, interestingly in the Greek, it comes from the same word from which we get the word dialogue. Dialogue. I find that really intriguing. He goes to the synagogue. He's trying to convince people to follow Christ who are already know who already know God, Jewish people and Greek God fearers. Okay, he's trying to convince them, and as he does so, he dialogues with them. 
What does that imply to you? There you go, Ellen. They're talking back and forth. There's not only talking, but listening. It's not a one-way street. It's a two-way street. You ever felt, this is a dangerous question for a guy who teaches you every week to ask, you ever felt preached at? I mean, other than at home. Okay? You ever feel preached at? Isn't that one of the things we love about this church? You just don't feel preached at. Instead of preaching at them, Paul reasoned with them. What what a great concept. I'll say this. I, I have studied some apologetics, and if you don't know what that is, you might look it up. It is kind of the idea of providing reasons for the faith. I've, I've studied that some. I'm a little bit proficient in it. But I'm going to tell you, I've, I have never, never argued, argued anyone into the kingdom. Never. Now, I've got the arguments. What Paul began to do is to reason with them in matters of faith. Now, his strategy is going to change as Timothy and Silas arrive. So let's read on. Bob, can I come back to you? Read 5 through 11, will you? Okay, now, Paul can change. He's still going to listen. But now he can move his ministry into testimony, telling his own story. Put that in one blank. Okay, he can move his ministry into testimony and some preaching. All right? He presses his claims about Jesus, particularly to the Jews. Why is he able to do this now when he couldn't do this before very much? He had help. He had help. He had help. I read a story this week about Charles Finney, who uh, really was kind of the evangelist that, that brought about the, what some call the second great awakening in America. Charles Finney will say the secret to what he did were two men by the name of Daniel Nash and Abel Clary, who people never saw in his evangelistic meeting. They hid somewhere and prayed every time. Hid somewhere and prayed every time. Here's what I think was going on, though. 
Here's what I think was going on. As Paul preached, as Paul gave his testimony, Timothy and Silas were praying. And when it was all over, you know, Paul kind of moved on down the street. And Timothy and Silas said, okay, let me explain to you what he was talking about. I really think they were working alongside him. I, I think it just, it was, he was able to be much freer uh, to do what he did because Timothy and Silas, who knew all the stuff that he knew, because he, he taught Timothy everything he knew, were able to come alongside and do that dialogue, do that reasoning. That's why he left them behind in Athens. That's why he left them behind in Berea. If you remember, that's just kind of how it worked. I, I find this wonderful. If, you've, if any of you ever worked as part of a Billy Graham crusade, we, we've done that here. I've done that other places or other crusades. One of the things that makes that work is the teams that they leave behind, the people that they train from here that they leave behind to work with people after the message has been delivered. So that's kind of what's happening here. All right. Now, he presses this. He wants this to happen. But in verse 6, what happens? How hard would this be? You know, it's interesting. One Jewish person met some people from here who were in Israel, and uh, one, you know, tour guide who was Jewish but knew all about Jesus. Uh, a couple of women from here asked him, you know, they'd kind of gotten to know him, been there a week or 10 days, said, How can you know all this about Jesus and yet not embrace him as your Messiah? And Estella, they said, uh, they, they told me that this man who knew every lot there was to know about Jesus just said it's just too easy just too easy isn't that interesting for whatever reason they rejected it and Paul was dejected he was dejected think about this for a little bit um, now I want to look at a couple of places let's go back a page or two somebody read 1345 because Paul's going to do something interesting here He's been rejected before. Okay. Cindy, can I come back to you and have you read 1351, same chapter, a few verses later? Estella, go to Luke 9 5. What did they do? What had Paul done before? Do what? You know, you got, literally in their day, they took their sandals off and clapped them together and left him. He's going to do that here in, in, uh, in the synagogue as well, which I find really intriguing. Why does he do this? Estella, tell us, Luke 9, 5. Is it any coincidence that that's recorded in Luke's gospel? Jesus said, if they don't accept the message, you know what? They're not rejecting you. They're rejecting me. 
Shake the dust off your sandals. Shake your cloak out. Leave. Leave all the dust in that place behind. Paul's getting ready to do that, even though he's really dejected. Um, so he's just doing what Jesus said to do. Now, I left a reference in your Bible. Go with me to Ezekiel 33, if you can find it. It's toward the end of the Old Testament. It's the last of the major prophets. Listen to what Ezekiel says. The word of the Lord came to me saying, Son of man, speak to the sons of your people and say to them, If I bring a sword upon a land and the people of the land take one man from among them and make him their watchman. There's a key subject there, the watchman. What you need to see here is a watchman on a wall. And he sees the sword coming upon the land and blows upon the trumpet and warns the people. Then he who hears the sound of the trumpet and doesn't take warning, a sword comes and takes him away, and his blood will be on his own head. He heard the sound of the trumpet but didn't take warning. His blood will be on himself. But had he taken warning, he would have delivered his life. But if the watchman sees the sword coming and doesn't blow the trumpet and the people aren't warned and a sword comes and takes a person from them, he is taken away in his own iniquity. But his blood I will require in the watchman's hand. Isn't that interesting? Paul is acting like a watchman on the wall. Say, so you've got to hear this message. Estella, whether they wanted to hear it or not. They still, they, they still don't. And so uh, the issue here is an issue of responsibility. Who's responsible for responding to the message? Is it the preacher? The teacher? No. Is it God himself? No. It's the one who has the message given to them has the responsibility to either respond or reject. And in this case, they rejected. So I find what Paul does really, really intriguing. Can you imagine as he leaves the house where the synagogue people are meeting, it would be in someone's house probably or in a, uh, a public hall, he takes his shoes off, claps them at the door, takes his cloak off and... Shakes the dust out. And according to verse 7, what does he do? Goes next door. I love this. He just goes next door. He begins, he takes those who have come to faith and they start a church, a brand new church next door to the synagogue. I find this really incredible. Now, a guy by the name of Crispus has then a big decision to make. What's his decision? Believe. He's, already, he's made a decision to believe. But Christmas's problem is what? He's the synagogue president. He's the guy that is in charge of everything. He's got to make a decision. So what does he do? Sorry, guys. Here's the keys. I'm going next door. He's got a big decision to make, and it comes at great personal cost. Would somebody go over, we're going to read where Paul talks about this a little bit 
in 1 Corinthians, but I want somebody to read the very first verse of 1 Corinthians 1. <coughs> Christmas is going to hand the leadership of the synagogue over to a guy by the name of Sosthenes. Okay? Uh, look down at verse 17 and you'll see his name again. Okay? Sosthenes gets beat up later on in this deal. <coughs> they all took hold of Sosthenes, the leader of the synagogue. He is the guy who comes in after Christmas and takes over. How do we know about Sosthenes? Because of what is written here by Dr. Luke. And because of what is kind of hinted at in the very first verse of the book that Paul, the letter that Paul later writes to the Corinthians. Somebody read 1-1. Good. He addresses Sosthenes. What, what, what do you think this implies? They got to have another leader in the synagogue by now. But he calls him his brother. He wouldn't call him his brother if Sosthenes hadn't come to faith as well. Just makes me wonder if there's just a series of these guys who take over the leadership of the synagogue. So, Great personal cost of Christmas. Now, Paul is still dealing in verse 9 and 10 with this pain that comes from, you know, I did all I could do. I reasoned with them. I preached to them. I gave my testimony to them. And my own countrymen, my Jewish brothers, didn't respond. So what does God do in verse 9 and 10? He gives him a dream, a vision as part of a dream. What is said in the dream? Verse 9 and 10. Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. Let's start it this way, okay? Paul's, he encourages him to keep speaking. As Estella said, keep on keeping on. There is a Jewish threat. You remember? He got, beat, he got run out of town in Berea. He got run out of town in Philippi. He's afraid that's going to happen again and the Jews are just next door. So Jesus says to him, you're doing the right thing. I don't want you to think that this rejection is a sign of God's disapproval of you. Isn't that important? You're doing what I want you to do. This is not about you. This is about them rejecting me. And so he gives them this encouragement to keep speaking, keep going in a dream. And then he gives them some insight. And you put this in the next line. He gives them some insight into his real mission. What does he tell them about his real mission? I got lots of people here. I got lots of people here. Yeah. Okay, does that mean he's got people there that need to be taught, or he's got lots of people to help him keep him from harm? I think the first, Estella. There's a lot more people I want you to talk to. Don't worry about the guys next door. In fact, this is a renewal of and a clarification of Paul's 
real mission, which was what? Was it to the Jews or to the Gentiles? To the Gentiles. I think Paul needed this vision to clarify that. And God says, I got a lot more people in this town that you need to meet. Don't you love that? Here's what I want us to kind of think about here. Don't assume, don't assume that your Corinth is beyond God's reach. You ever been in a job where you seemed like everybody around you was pagan? Now, thankfully, I don't have that kind of job right now. The only pagan I work around is Morgan Alsop, and he's, he's getting close, but yeah. <laughs> Morgan, we talk about this every week, don't we? We talk about this every week, how wonderful it is to come to work with people who have a, a like value system, who believe as you believe, who have a heart like your heart. But not everybody has that. Have you ever been in one of those places? Where it just seemed like, okay, Lord, everybody here is pagan. I want you to hear this verse. God may be saying to you, you know what? I got lots more people here that need you. That's what he said to Paul. Don't give up, man. I'm just clarifying your, your vision here. These are the people that I've sent you to Corinth to meet. Don't assume that your Corinth is beyond God's reach. Okay, so he stays there and he develops this relationship with them that is deep and lasting and most of it is with people that were not Jewish to start with. They were pagans to start with. He'll come back later. He'll write them two letters and in those letters he has to take them to the woodshed a bit but he also expresses lots and lots and lots of affection for them. He stays there the longest that he stays anywhere. Bob, oh, Bob left us. Somebody read verse 18 down through 21. We'll close it out real quick. Paul stayed on in Corinth for some time, and he left the brothers and sailed for Syria, accompanied by Priscilla and Aquila. Before he sailed, he had his hair cut off at Shinkaria, I think. He's going to go back to Antioch, which is where he started. On the way, he stops to see his friends in Ephesus. But he goes to the synagogue. Why? He's Jewish, and that's where he always starts. He's got friends that he's still working on in the synagogue. But what happens there? Still some pushback. And in verse 20 and 21, I think it's really interesting that verse 20 and 21, he wouldn't have had the same response had he not had the vision that he had in verse 17. What does he say? I'm going to move on. Catch that? Catch that? He stays there. They ask him to stay and reason with him a little while longer. He says, no, I'm going to move on. I think that's because he knows now 
what his real mission is. He's had it renewed. He's still, he'll still go meet people in the synagogue, but he knows that his mission field is former pagans. He had a new sense of his mission. Now, at the end of, uh, in verse 18, as we begin to read this, it's interesting. It talks about a vow that he took. He takes a Nazarite vow um, as he goes from Antioch back to Jerusalem. And it just mentions here, he had his hair cut. Okay? If you'll read number six, it'll tell you that you get your hair cut before the period of the vow and you get your hair cut after the period of the vow. That literally, um, the idea here is um, uh, they cut their hair. This isn't a lifetime vow. This is a shorter vow. And he, he, he has his hair cut. He lets it grow through that whole period of time. And then he literally offers his hair back to God as part of a kind of a, a, a cleansing gift at the end of the vow. So he takes this vow um, in verse 18. Uh, the vow kind of indicates a seriousness about his work. The vow indicates a consecration to do what God has called him to do. And it's also a determination to be holy. He's not going to drink any during that time, any, any uh, fruit of the vine during that time. He's going to stay away from dead things and from unholy things. And so he dedicates himself during this period of the vow because he knows he's going back to Jerusalem. And so we see kind of the end of the vow here. Now, here's what I want to ask you as we close out. What is a good word that you would use to describe? We've studied Paul over the last four or five weeks. Paul's work, his attitude toward work. What would you say? There's no right answer here, by the way. Dedicated. Dedicated? What is it? Consistent. Sorry? He, boy, did he ever. He'd get beat and whatever, and he kept going around. I like the fact that he had trouble here, so he goes next door. Going to persevere? Yeah. Somebody else? True to his mission. He had to have it tweaked here in chapter 18. But true to his mission. Um, I put the word tenacious, which is kind of like your word. And I put another word. You ready? Adaptable. Adaptable. Go with me to the right over to 1 Corinthians 9. I want to close this with three verses from 1 Corinthians 9. I want to start in verse 20. You'll remember this, I think, as I read it. Here's what he says. To the Jews, I became a Jew. So that I might win Jews. To those who are under the law, as under the law, though not being myself under the law, so that I might win those who are under the law. To those who are without law, as without law, though not being without the law of God, but under the law of Christ, so that I might win those who are without law. To the weak I became weak, that I might win the weak. I've become all things to all men, so that I might by all means save some. And I do it all, he says, for the sake of the gospel.
Okay, so this makes me ask myself a question. Am I adaptable enough? Am I adaptable enough? Or, or am I just kind of stuck? If, if Christmas and the boys don't want to listen to me, am I willing to just set up shop next door? Yeah, but what about Sosthenes? Well, you know what? I'm going to keep praying for Sosthenes, and I'm going to work on him while I'm sewing leather in the daytime. <coughs> Adaptable. Moldable. <coughs> I think one of the things... often keep me from being effective is my unwillingness to change. <clears throat> Not the message. Heavens, no. Maybe my method. You know? My method. Okay. I'm going to take you beginning next week. We're going to start looking at Worship in the context for at least three weeks or so, in the context of the Christmas story. If you want to prepare, go ahead and read the first couple of chapters of Matthew and the first couple of chapters of Luke. Okay? Tells most of the Christmas story. First couple of chapters of Matthew, first couple of chapters of Luke. I'm going to take us back. We'll do a little bit of Old Testament work too, but I want you to kind of have that rummaging through your head, okay? And through the month of December, we're going to pick up some themes of worship that are in, uh, in community, actually, that are in the Christmas story. God bless you. Thanks for braving the rain and all that today. And I will see you next Sunday.